0: Job answered the Lord and said, If you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Difficulties and suffering and trials are a fact of life. But how we respond to them is our choice. As an old man looking back on his life, the late... Malcolm Muggeridge made this observation. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, everything I have learned, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. If it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too dull and trivial to be endurable. By way of contrast, media mogul Ted Turner, who has described himself publicly at times as either an atheist or an agnostic, was raised in a church going home. In fact, he has sarcastically said, "I was born again seven times, so one of them is bound to take." But when his sister got a form of lupus and suffered terribly before finally dying, Turner got bitter and turned away from God. And today, he is openly hostile to Christianity, calling it a religion for losers. And in a recent interview, he was still asking that same question. How could God let my sister suffer so much? It's obvious that Malcolm Muggridge grew better through his trials. Ted Turner grew bitter. Now, I'll grant to you that it's difficult to understand how God can be both good and omnipotent. It's hard to understand how God can be all good and all powerful and still allow suffering to take place in the world. To resolve that, some people say, well, He's he's good, He's just really not all powerful, so He's really good, He's just doing the best He can, He just can't change anything. That's a pretty pitiful God. God. Others say, well, he's all powerful, but he's really not good because if he was good, he would change things. And since he's not, we have to conclude that he's not good. Or others like Ted Turner just say he doesn't exist. But saying he doesn't exist doesn't eliminate God and it doesn't eliminate the problems. How would you answer Ted Turner's question? Or more importantly, how do you answer it when suffering comes into your life. You see, as Christians, if we're going to run with endurance the race that is set before us, we need to understand the part that suffering plays in our lives. And to help us with that, the writer in Hebrews chapter 12 moves from the analogy of a marathon in the opening verses to the analogy of a family in verses 4 to 11. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, verses 7 to 11, he wants us to see that suffering is part of our Heavenly Father's loving discipline. And I've picked out five points that he makes about God's discipline in this passage. They're in your bulletin. You can follow along. The first is the proof of discipline in verses 7 and 8. And to get the context, I want us to back up to verse 6. It says, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? Now that word scourges in verse 6 is a strong word. It means to whip. And what it's telling us is that God spanks His children. And a spanking hurts. But that's what loving parents do. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your son while there is hope and let not your soul spare for his crying. Proverbs 22.15 Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 33.13 Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. Though he may tell you that you shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from sheol proverbs 29:15 the rod and reproof give wisdom but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother discipline is an expression of your love for your children it's true of you as a parent and it's true of god Trials are not a sign of God's neglect or of God's opposition. They are actually a sign of God's love. Discipline shouldn't cause me to faint with doubts. It's actually a confirmation that I am God's child. You see, if you are cruising through life, not getting any correction or any training or any discipline, guess what? Look at verse 8. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're going through life without getting any spankings, he says you are an illegitimate child. Discipline-free living is not a sign of God's blessing. It's a sign of God's neglect. God's not spanking you. If you're not getting a red bottom once in a while, then you're not His child. So discipline, number one, is the proof that you're God's child. Second point, the purpose of discipline. In verses 9 and 10, notice verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them... Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. Now I see two purposes in these verses. Purpose number one is God's best. In verse 9, He contrasts, earthly fathers, or literally that phrase is fathers of our flesh, with the father of spirits. He's contrasting our earthly father with our heavenly father. Now, when I was a child, and this is going to date me, but when I was a child, there was a show on TV called Father Knows Best. And I'm guessing that that pilot wouldn't even make it through today. And I'm sure that title wouldn't make it through today. But, but the show was, Father Knows Best. But as verse 10 points out, even those of you who had fathers who loved and disciplined you, they didn't know best. They knew better than you do, but they didn't know best. Verse 10 says, they only did it as seemed best to them. You see, earthly fathers have limited wisdom. They don't know their children thoroughly and perfectly. They don't know their children's thoughts and motives. But our Heavenly Father does. Good earthly fathers try to act in love, but they often fail. Have you ever disciplined your children out of anger? I have. It's more about venting and getting my frustration out than it is out of really loving them. But see, our Heavenly Father always disciplines us in love. He's never temperamental. As verse 10 says, our earthly fathers have jurisdiction over us for a short time, only during our childhood. But our Heavenly Father's authority and discipline extends over our lifetime and beyond. Our earthly fathers seek to prepare us for life on earth, but our heavenly father seeks to prepare us for eternity. And the point here is that the discipline of our earthly fathers was beneficial, even though it was flawed by their human shortcomings. And I know that I'm speaking to some in this room who who had fathers who had major shortcomings. But but his point is, if you respected your earthly father because he was trying to do his best, then how much more should we respect our heavenly father who is doing what is best? So the first purpose is God's best. The second purpose I see in these two verses is our good. Notice verse 10 again. It says in the middle of the verse, but He disciplines us for our good. Don't you like that? God's discipline comes into your life for your good. Now the question is, what is your good? If God asked you, you tell me what's good for you and I'll work it out, you would probably say, I don't know, maybe living on a beach somewhere with all of life's comforts and no problems. That would be good. But see, God doesn't ask us what is good any more than you probably ask your children what's good. If I—if you ask your little child what's good, he may think playing in the street is good. He may think eating ice cream and candy all day long is good. You see, you don't let your child define what is good. You as a parent know best what is good and so you discipline your child to make his life good. And that's what our Father does. So the better question is, what is our good from God's perspective? And the answer is in verse 10. Look at it again. But He disciplines us for our good. Here it comes. So that we may share His holiness. What is good? That we share God's holiness. Now, that may not sound good to you. If I say, what's good? And you say, to be holy is good. Most of us don't jump on that real quick. But if you'll notice, he says it's to share God's holiness. So what is good is that we as children would grow up to be like our Heavenly Father. See, that's what's good. One of the verses we often quote when suffering comes into our life is Romans 8 28 it says and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose we like that verse God's making all things work together for good and we love that verse because we like to decide what good is but if you look carefully at that verse what is good well verse 29 tells us because he goes on to say For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's what good is. You see, good is becoming like Jesus in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, our good is becoming like our heavenly Father and sharing his holiness. All that is the purpose of God's discipline. It is God's best, and it is our good. Third point is the posture of discipline. Now, the posture in our home when we were getting disciplined was to bend over and grab your ankles. And we learned that if you didn't, you know, if you tried to resist that posture, you usually got... A worse spanking so you might as well assume the posture Uh, I remember watching my older brother when he didn't want to assume the posture and and uh, is my mom here she used to she'd be going around in circles and, and just swinging for whatever she could hit and I learned from that you know it's better to assume the posture than to just try to resist What's our posture to be when God is disciplining us? Well, look at verse 9. It says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? It's to be subject. That word means to be submissive. That's a word that grates on our fallen human nature. We don't like to submit. I saw a Frank and Ernest cartoon where they, they're both standing at the pearly gates and Ernest is wearing a shirt that reads, Question Authority. St. Peter is scowling and Frank's whispering to Ernie, If I were you, I'd change my shirt. You see, if you like to question authority, your questions better Stop when you get in the presence of God. Because God is ultimate authority. And whether we like His program for our life or not, we have to submit. Submission always begins with God. The Bible tells us we are to submit to our husbands. We are to submit to our wives. We are to submit to our bosses we are to submit to one another but we will never accomplish that kind of submission until we first submit ourselves to god and i think the writer realizes that this is going to be a hard concept to swallow and so he adds some incentive at the end of the verse you see it be subject to the father of spirits and live This is one of those paradoxes in God's economy. The Bible says you find your life by what? Losing it. You are exalted by humbling yourself. You gain victory through surrender. And here, you experience life to its fullest when you submit. And submission is is more than just leaning over and grabbing your ankles. Submission is an attitude. We don't want to be like the little boy whose mother told him to sit in a chair until he calmed down and he defiantly walked over the chair, sat down, and said, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. That's not submission. See, we want to be like the psalm writer who said in Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We should submit to God not only because He's our loving Father and He's doing it for our good, and not only because it brings us fullness of life, but for the simple reason that He is the sovereign God who does with us whatever He pleases. I think that's the point in the book of Job. Even though... Job was the most godly man on the earth. God had a perfect right to take away from him everything that, got, that Job treasured. One of the most shocking instances of this is in Ezekiel 24. I think it begins in verse 15. God told the prophet Ezekiel that he was about to take away the desire of his eyes with a blow. And the desire of Ezekiel's eyes was his wife. God says, I'm about to take away your wife with a blow. And when I do, I don't want you to mourn or weep as a spiritual object lesson to Israel. The next day, Ezekiel's wife died and he did as God commanded him. Wow. You see, Ezekiel learned a basic lesson that we all need to learn, and that is God is God, and I am not. If the sovereign God of the universe wants to take my wife, my children, my possessions, my health, my life, that's his prerogative. Let me suggest, next time you're suffering, next time you're experiencing discipline, ask yourself these questions. Was it severe, as severe as it could have been? No. Was it as severe as I deserve? Was it as severe as my Savior suffered for me? No. Do I trust God that He knows better than me what is best and that He loves me even more than I love myself? Yeah. Well, if so, then I just have one thing to do. Not grumble, not complain, not question, not manipulate, just submit. That's the posture of discipline. Fourth is the product of discipline. In verse 11, "All discipline for the moment seems not to be <coughs> excuse me. all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, aren't you glad that the Bible acknowledges that first phrase? You see it again? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Initially, discipline isn't joyful, it's sorrowful. It isn't easy, it isn't pleasant. It isn't wrong to cry out loudly to God in the midst of your suffering. It isn't wrong to weep in the midst of a trial. In fact, Jesus did the very same thing. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 says, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. The Psalms give us indication that it's okay to bear our sorrows and griefs to the Lord as long as we do it with a submissive spirit. It's okay to cry when you're suffering. That's why God gave you tear ducts. You say, but Dan, how does weeping fit in with the Bible's command to rejoice always in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16? Well, that command doesn't mean that we always go around with a smile on our face saying praise the Lord even when we're hurting. That command doesn't mean that you say you feel great even when you don't because that's hypocrisy. Even Jesus in Mark 14, 34 admitted, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Now, some preachers today would say, come on, Jesus, you're being a little negative there. You need to speak positive words. Those are not real positive words. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. You know what the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament is? Rejoice always. You know what the shortest word or verse in the English New Testament is? Jesus wept. And there's no contradiction between rejoice always and Jesus wept. I can have joy even when I'm not happy. And I can have joy even in the midst of tears and pain. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 6.10. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Now what's the key to rejoicing in the midst of sorrows? Well, the key is to focus on the product. And what's the product? We see it at the end of verse 11. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, I, want, I want us to note three things about that phrase. Number one, righteousness and peace always go together. Make a note of that. You can't have true righteousness without peace, and you can't have true peace without righteousness. If you try to take a shortcut out of a trial, and that shortcut involves disobedience, you may find temporary relief, but you're not going to find God's peace. Some people get in a difficult marriage situation, and they say, well, I know where the solution is. I'll get a divorce and get out of this, and I'll get some relief. Do they get peace? No. No because they have been disobedient. That is not a righteous choice. And righteousness and peace always go together. Second thing I want you to note, the fact that righteousness is called fruit shows us that it takes time to grow. In our society, we've got instant coffee, instant oatmeal, instant photocopies, instant everything. I still haven't... Notice that anybody's come up with instant fruit. And I think that's why God chooses to call righteousness fruit. Because righteousness grows slowly but surely in our lives as we submit to God's discipline. Third thing I would note fruit grows best on vines that are pruned. Vines that are pruned. And pruning can be painful. Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. When discipline comes into your life, it may be as a result of the fact that you're already growing fruit faithfully for God and He wants to prune you so that He can produce more fruit in your life. Now, how does God's discipline produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Well, let me suggest five ways. There, there are probably many more. Number one, God's discipline produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness by correcting us when we sin. When we get out of line, God's discipline is designed to bring us back into line where that righteousness is. The psalm writer gave this testimony in Psalm 119.67. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I was going astray until I got afflicted, and now I'm keeping your word. Why? Because God's discipline brings us back into line. Second, God's discipline produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness by uncovering hidden sins like self-righteousness and pride. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm going through life thinking I've got it all together and then some discipline comes and it exposes some sin in my life that I didn't even know I was harboring. And those are often those kind of motives of self-righteousness and pride. In fact, I think it's a human tendency to say, you know, others may commit terrible sins, but I would never do that. You ever guilty of that? Peter was that way. Night before Jesus was crucified in Mark 14:29, he said, "Even though all may fall away, I will not." These other guys are a little, little shaky, you know they're, they're probably going to bail on you, but I never will." Famous last words. What did Jesus say to him on that same night? He said, "Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat." Peter, you're going to go into a trial this evening that's going to turn your life upside down. In fact, you're going to deny me three times before dawn. What was that trial all about? Well, it was revealing to Peter his own self-righteousness and pride. Third, God's discipline produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness by helping us shift our focus from this life to eternity. Even though the Bible clearly tells us in James 4.14 that our life is just a vapor by nature, we're all too focused on this life, wouldn't you admit? And one of the ways God gets our focus off of this life is that the older we get, the more our body begins to break down. And I think that's God's plan. The older I get, the, the more it hurts when I try to do some activity. And God's reminding me that my emphasis is not on the temporal. My emphasis should be on the eternal. Paul wrote in Second Corinthians four sixteen: Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The fact that my body is breaking down should cause me to take my focus off of the temporal, the material, and put it on the spiritual and eternal. Janice Roddy's dad passed away. Uh, Just was it Friday? Thursday? Um, The last time I went to visit him, if Janice and her mother had not been in the room, I would have thought I was in the wrong room because he did not look like the same man. His body had deteriorated. And I think in some ways that is God's hand of blessing on us, even the family. I think at the end they were asking God to take him home because in that physical condition they realized he, he doesn't need to be here anymore. He needs to be in heaven. And I think that's part of God's process of allowing us to let go of a loved one. And that that process of our bodies deteriorating is reminding us that we're not made for this world. This is not the eternal destiny God has for us. It's somewhere else. Fourth, God's discipline produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness by driving us closer to Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.8, that the Lord burdened him excessively beyond his strength so that he despaired even of life. Why did God do that? Listen to his answer in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 1. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Adversity has a way of causing us to lean on the Lord in ways that we don't need to when life is trouble-free. And then I would suggest a fifth way. God's discipline produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness by developing compassion and humility in us. Sometimes we look down on people who are suffering. If you ever arrogantly thought, you know, if they would just... Get it together like me, they wouldn't be having these problems. And then what happens? God brings problems into your life. And suddenly you have far more compassion for those who are suffering. You lose that proud, judgmental spirit and you grow in sympathy. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 1.4, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's all part of the product of discipline. And then fifth point, the process of discipline. There's an important condition in verse 11 that I don't want us to miss. Look at the verse again. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Every son gets disciplined, but the peaceful fruit of righteousness is only produced in the lives of those who have been trained by it. Now, trained is an interesting word. It's the Greek word gymnazo, from which we get our English word gymnasium. It has the idea of the place for physical training and exercise. But it's an interesting word because the word literally means to strip naked. It's the word used in John 21, 7 when the disciples are fishing and Jesus shows up on the beach and it says, When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work. He was gymnazo for work. You say, well, why does the word gym mean stripped naked? Well, let me give you two suggestions. Both are true. Number one, because training is Is serious a serious athlete doesn't wear unnecessary cumbersome clothing he strips it off you don't expect to go to the gym and and find people wearing business suits as he said in chapter 12 verse 1 a marathon runner strips himself of all needless weights and hindrances so this word means to strip naked because training is serious let me give you a second idea. That is because training is specific. The ancient Greeks, like modern Americans, were enamored by the perfect body. So an athlete would go to the gym and he would, he would strip before his trainer who would determine which muscles the athlete needed to develop. And then he would develop a regimen for the athlete to build up the muscles that were lacking to help perfect his body his physique but of course to benefit from that regimen the athlete had to submit to the training some of you have joined a gym you've gone to the personal trainer he's evaluated your muscles he's established a regimen prints it out you know it's this many curls that many squats This long on the stationary bike? We need to work on your pecs and your abs. We need to build up this. We need to build up that. This is is what you need. Now, if you did that for two weeks and then quit and went back to lying on the couch and curling lemonade, you didn't get any benefits from that. You see, I think the writer is telling us that God is the perfect personal spiritual trainer. He knows just where you're lacking. He needs, he knows just where you need to develop the spiritual muscle to run well in the spiritual race. And He has set up the regimen. It's all part of His discipline in your life. But if we don't submit to that regimen, we're not going to benefit from it. Let me ask you in closing when difficulties come into your life, how do you view them? Do you view them as if God is putting an extra 10 pounds on each side of the barbell? And He's spotting you and He's saying, now do the bench press and you'll get stronger. You can do it. Or do you view it as if God's putting a hundred pounds on each side of the barbell and he's walking away and leaving you to be crushed underneath? Are you traumatized by trials? Or are you trained by trials? Are you becoming bitter or better? I'm going to have the praise team come back and close our service this morning.